Freemasonism, Pelagianism, Gnosticism, Valentinians, Corporations, Docetics, Montanists, Arianism, Modernism, the New Age. throughout the ages have rocked the church. But the church has always fought back and won. Hear how next on Scandal of the Cross with Bob and Penny Lord. Family and welcome. Heresies attacked Jesus even while he walked the earth. Right from the beginning, before he died, Heresies attacked Jesus and his church. Jesus went about forgiving men's sins. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could not accept this. How could he forgive sins? Only God could forgive sins. They could not allow this to continue. When a man is free from sin and its cancer, then and only then can he be free from physical pain. Jesus, with his blinding mirror of love, brought light into the darkness of sin that was eating away at the society of his time, and Lucifer had to put out that light. Sin is always done in the dark. Our Heavenly Father, seeing the suffering and pain of His children, sent His only Son, Jesus, to earth to be sacrificed for the redemption of men's sins. God had asked Abraham to sacrifice His Son out of love and obedience to Him. But our God in His compassion did not require of Abraham that which He, out of supreme love for us, would later do. See His most precious, His only begotten Son, take the place of the spotless lamb and be sacrificed for the salvation of the world. Was Lucifer angry? Die for men's sins that they may be saved from eternal damnation? He was livid. Lucifer knew the value of Jesus dying for his enemies as well as his friends. This God-man Jesus was not in keeping with the lie Lucifer was selling, that of the God of anger, punishment, fire, and brimstone, the God who didn't care, who left us alone except to catch us in sin so he could punish us. And so Lucifer went after the weak link in the chain of apostles Jesus had chosen to follow him. Lucifer plied and manipulated Judith with social justice. Feed the poor's stomachs. Do not be worried about their souls. Has anyone ever seen a soul? But you can see a man's swelling stomach. Does this sound familiar? As Judas was stealing from Jesus and the apostles, he was crying out for social justice. Judas was a thief. Recall when he rebuked the woman for anointing Jesus. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the village of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Mary brought a pound of costly perfume made from genuine aromatic nard, which, which she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she dried his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the ointment's fragrance. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to hand him over, protested, Why was not this perfume sold? It could have brought 300 silver pieces and the money given to the poor. He did not say this out of concern for the poor, but because he was a thief. He held the purse and used to help himself to what was deposited there. To this Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Let her keep it against the day they prepare me for burial. Judas, when Jesus said these words, against the day they prepare me for burial, did your heart not melt? When he looked at you with his unconditional love, did you not cry inside for the betrayal that would cause him so much pain? 
Did you look away from his innocent, questioning eyes pleading for your soul? How have I wronged you? I only wanted to love you, but fear not. I will show you the extent of my love. I will open my arms even wider to embrace you in my love on the cross. Yes, even to you who have sinned against me, just ask for forgiveness. My mercy longs to forgive you. Judas sold Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. Had he become so enamored with the silver, so involved with the monetary cost of spreading the word that he lost sight of the cost Jesus spoke of, that of complete anuim, abandonment to the will of the Father? Had he begun to worship the purse he held and the honor and the power connected with the holding of the purse strings? Have not Jesus' trusted friends been selling out Jesus to his enemies for honor and power these last two thousand years? Lucifer could not kill Jesus on the cross. No grave could contain him. Lucifer and his pawns could not erase him from the face of the earth, whether by lies or deception. They tried to destroy every semblance of a shrine to our Lord and his life on earth, and still we remember him. They made bloody examples of those who dared not deny him, and still we dare to love and follow him. The world has forgotten his enemies. It will never forget him. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said Judas began his plot to betray Jesus when Jesus gave us his Eucharistic doctrine at Capernaum, calling himself the bread of life. From John 6:51, we read, I myself and the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. Though the bread I give is my flesh for the life of the world to come. Jesus said to them, Let me solemnly assure you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Then at the Last Supper, when Jesus directed his apostles how they could bring him to the faithful until he returned, Judas completed his betrayal. The devil had already induced Judas, son of Simon, to hand Jesus over. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said Jesus could not bear belief in the Eucharist. Was his problem the same that we see throughout our church's 2,000-year history? Was Jesus not the God he had hoped for? Jesus was a God of peace, a God of turn the other cheek, love your enemies. Was this the God he had been waiting for, fighting for? Was this the God who would save the Jewish people? No. He wanted a God who would fight and free the Jews from captivity, physical captivity, a conquering hero kind of God now. Jesus was talking about eternal salvation, tomorrow and forever. Judas wanted freedom now, glory now. He knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He ate at Jesus' table. Jesus taught him. Jesus chose him. How could he betray him? Are we any better being silent when we know false gods are being preached? Are we not betraying Jesus when we are double-talked into believing our Lord's death and resurrection as a story more than a reality? Do we stand by and do nothing as they did while our Lord was being nailed to the cross? When the enemy pride tempts us to choose the humanistic approach, replacing the one true God for a power within, and we buy it, are we any better than the Jews who rejected Jesus and chose Barabbas instead? We know Jesus in his word, in his body and blood, soul and divinity, in the most holy Eucharist. He sent his Holy Spirit upon us. We stand on holy ground in a church made holy by the blood of martyrs who died rather than deny Christ and his church. We stand on a heritage bought by the faithfulness of 2,000 years of Catholics professing and living the Nicene Creed. This is our tradition. This is what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. With the disciples at Emmaus who said, Do our hearts not burn? Our hearts burn as we repeat these words of faith that have echoed from the hill of Calvary to the catacombs of Rome to the blood-stained streets and jails of Christian martyrs. Is your vision blurred by tears instead of clouded by false promises? The attacks on Jesus began while he was still on earth. They have continued down through the centuries. Would they have stopped immediately if we had stood up for our Lord, if we had refused to participate in the bashing of our Lord and his church? Would the attacks on our church be going on today if we had stood up anywhere along the line, if we would now stand up and say, this is my God you're torturing, killing, spitting at, we have had enough? We will not stand by and see you hurt our Lord anymore. Stop. We say no. No more attacks on his Eucharist. No more attacks on his word. No more attacks on his mother. No more attacks on his church. Lord, we will no longer stand idly by like the spectators who watched you die on the cross. We will not run from the mission you have given us, Lord, like our first Pope Peter. We, like Peter before us, ask your forgiveness. Jesus, we, like St. Francis before us, are ready to walk through burning coals for you. We are giving notice to the world. We are the church. We are the mystical body of Christ. We will not allow anyone to talk against our Lord and his church. We give notice to those of you who have betrayed the trust our Lord has passed on to you, who have betrayed his church. Well, no more. He will shepherd us through his vicar and the loyal bishops who are in union with him. Mother Mary is rallying troops behind Pope John Paul II. With him at the head of our army, we will defend our church. We are ready to live for our church. We are ready to die for our church. When we began writing our book, This is My Body, This is My Blood, Miracles of the Eucharist, we did not know we were writing a defense of the real presence of our Lord Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. We were just trying to share the gifts we discovered on our travels to the shrines in Europe, the treasure we have in our church. But no sooner was our first book published than we became aware of God's reason for pushing us to write about his miracles of the Eucharist. We started to hear from the faithful of the abuses against the Eucharist within and without the church. Then we began to know the sorrowful heart of our Lord Jesus. We could see what he saw, his children, those he had died for, lambs being led to slaughter. For if our Lord is not truly present in the Holy Eucharist, then we are totally dependent on the Lord we find in our brothers and sisters. 
And what happens when we fail to find this Jesus we seek and need? Do we look elsewhere? That's the best of the bad news, that we seek our Lord in another church. But is that really what Satan is after? We no longer think so. We believe he wants us to feel hopeless and helpless. He wants us to believe that we are not children of the Father, that the Bible is just filled with stories for a particular time to govern people's behavior, that Jesus was never born, that he never died, and that there is no God, that we are gods. Where are the attacks coming from? The most unlikely places. That's what is so devious about Satan and his plan to destroy the church. We grew up believing if the priest said it, it is so. You could bank on his word, on his homilies, that they were in communion with the church, that they were based on the magisterium. Now we're hearing things like, what is a magisterium? Referring to our Pope's universal catechism, dissidents are saying, he sounds like he has been asleep for the last 20 years. I thought we were supposed to respect and obey the words of the Pope as our sweet Christ on earth. To give you an example of the deviousness of Satan, we believe he is using very unsuspecting priests and sisters to do his dirty work. And the poor lands that they are teaching are mesmerized by sweet smiles and sweet words, nine good words, and they are on the way to heresy with the tenth. I was giving a talk at a gathering of women dedicated to Mother Mary. The priest said that at the time of the visitation, Mary's parents quickly spirited her out of town so she wouldn't be stoned. Again, inferring she went in fear for her life, he continued, You bet she went in haste. I didn't bother to contradict the priest because I knew our mother would be defending when I got up to speak. Mary would have her day in court. I said, Mother Mary knew and recognized the angel. She had been waiting for the Messiah to be born of a virgin. The scriptures had told her so. In her humility, she was amazed that it was she who had been chosen. In Luke 1.48, we read, He has looked upon his servant in her lowliness. But because she had spent her whole life in prayer, when the angel Gabriel brought her the good news, she was open to receive it and act upon it. She did not focus on herself. She did not boast, I am the virgin who was chosen to bear the Son of God. Instead, believing the miracle that her aged cousin was with child, she went in haste to help her. Our lady was not showing. She was not far enough along to show. My problem with this and other supposed humanization of Our Lady is we reduce her to our level of sinfulness. She, who was not only spotless as the mother of God would have to be, but who was immaculately conceived. The rationalization that is used about mother is so illogical. By placing this imperfection of sin upon Our Lady, we are proposing an impossible scientific fact. We are alleging that you can get perfect fruit from a diseased tree. The most humble father, farmer will tell you this is impossible. One day, when we went into a Blessed Sacrament Chapel to pray, we discovered sheets of paper containing innocent prayers to God with the heading mantras. Surely it, it wasn't the prayers that disturbed us, it was the word mantras. The children in the CCD class were young and impressionable. They will remember the word mantras. After all, they learned it in church. It must be a church teaching. And so when someday someone tells them they can buy a mantra, which can be very expensive, or teaches them a mantra, they will remember what they read in a Catholic religious education book. One kind of centering prayer that you might want to use is called a mantra. 
It goes on to say that you have probably noticed that mantras are short prayers that start by addressing God. Have we not forgotten what the word mantra has historically stood for and is associated with till today? Definition of mantra in the dictionary is Hinduism, a hymn or portion of text, especially from the Veda, chanted or intoned as an incantation or prayer. Looking up the word Veda in the dictionary, we find Veda, one of four ancient sacred books of Hinduism, consisting of psalms, chants, sacred formulas, etc. Our eyes travel down a couple of words in the dictionary and we found Vedanta, a system of Hindu, monistic and pantheistic philosophy based on the Veda. Pantheism teaches that God is not a personality, but that all laws, forces or manifestations of the self-existing universe are God. A radical heresy, pantheism claims that man is on a level with God, equal to him. God is not a being, but is manifested in all the forces of the universe. It began as a belief in 1705 when the term pantheism was originally coined by J. Toland in England. Originally, only the intelligentsia understood and accepted the heresy, but by the French Revolution it had sifted down to the common man. They were led to believe and accept that because of the great strides being made by man as a result of the Industrial Revolution, they didn't need God anymore. Pantheism is a direct contradiction of the centuries-old belief of Catholics regarding the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Our belief that only Jesus and Mary were born without sin clashed with the new heresy of man being equal with God, which had caused confusion and division. There was need to make the truth clear to the faithful. Mary brought the point across in 1830 in the chapel of the Miraculous Medal in Paris, where she appeared to a little postulant, St. Catherine Labouret, and declared she was the Immaculate Conception. Pope Pius IX officially proclaimed that which we have always believed, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception on December the 8th, 1854. In case there was any doubt left as to the invalidity of pantheism, Mary appeared again in 1858, only now to a poor, simple girl named Bernadette Subaru in a remote village of Lourdes, high in the Pyrenees Mountains, and stated once again, I am the Immaculate Conception. In 1846, our country was consecrated to a lady of the Immaculate Conception, and she was declared patroness of the United States. Stone upon stone have risen from the cornerstone that was laid in 1913, and now a national shrine of the Immaculate Conception looms high in Washington, D.C., in the capital of our country, the same country that allowed the atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare to practically wipe out the name of God in our nation's schools. But she, like so many bedfellows of Satan, cannot wipe out who he is, he who was and he who always will be. And this monument to God's mother rises high among the national monuments of a country that promised religious freedom and somewhere along the way got lost to shout to all the people for all time that we are really a country founded under God. Mother Mary has been appearing at different times in different crises, bringing the same message to her children. We have a personal God who loves us. Why is she appearing in countries all over the world today? Is it because the threat of pantheism is here once again? 
Pantheism negates the essential difference between God and his creation. Rather, it promotes, and we hear this so very often in our highly intellectual society, the cosmic God, who is found only in and revealed solely through created objects and things. And yet St. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one deceive you through any empty, seductive philosophy that follows mere human traditions, a philosophy based on cosmic powers rather than on Christ. Man has been trying to lower God to his sinful, lowly station from almost the beginning of time. The danger of CCD books sanctioned by an imprimata which advocate terminology that smacks of pantheism under the guise of sound Catholic teaching is that it ultimately leads to man and away from God. A priest was giving a workshop on the Eucharist. He handed everyone a questionnaire. It asked the four necessary elements required to celebrate the Eucharist. We were having difficulty coming up with the fourth element. He informed us the correct answer was, number one, the people, number two, the priest, number three, the word, and then last, the Eucharistic elements. He went on to stress that not any one element was more important than the other. Is this not a heresy? Now, if I recall correctly... What is essential for the Mass, essential for the Mass to be valid, is the Word, the Eucharist, and the priest who summons the Holy Spirit down upon the bread and wine, and through his consecrated hands, they are transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. In no way are we belittling the importance of the faithful participating in the Mass. We are simply stating that it is our belief that a Mass celebrated on, uh, by a priest on a side altar in St. Peter's Basilica without anyone else present, although not preferable, is still valid and holy. Let us quote from the documents of Vatican Council II. Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests who formerly offered himself on the cross, but especially under the Eucharistic species. By his power, he is present in the sacraments, so that when a man baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. He is present in his word, since it is himself who speaks when the Holy Scriptures are read in church. He is present lastly when the church prays and sings, for he promised, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The priest kept referring to the host as Eucharistic wine and bread. Now, I am not in any way disputing that our Lord comes to us under the appearance of bread and wine. But I contend, as councils of the church have proclaimed again and again, that the consecrated host is no longer bread, that real change has come about, and that the wine is no longer wine but real bread, the blood that Christ shed on the cross. This doctrine is called transubstantiation. If we call the consecrated host bread, then has change come about? If change has not come about, then as we, with some of our separated brothers and sisters who, in Christ, who contend they have the Eucharist but believe it is a symbol, then is it all right for us to throw away the hosts that are left over? Because, after all, it's only bread. Then why tabernacles? 
Is he present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the tabernacle? Why exposition of the blessed sacrament? Why do the faithful come at all hours of the day and night to keep the blessed sacrament company? Are we worshipping a piece of bread? Are we worshipping, as some of our non-Catholic brethren believe, an idol, as we kneel before a monstrance? Or are we worshipping our Lord in the Holy Eucharist, who is present before us in the monstrance? As we pray to the Lord to share His eyes with us so that we might see His priest with His eyes, the thought that came to me is, Oh, Father, when did you lose the gift you were given on the day of your ordination? Will you remain in the priesthood or will you leave? For as Bishop Sheen said, our priests are not leaving because they are lonely or the life is too hard or they desire the companionship of a wife and family. They have lost their faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. It is not bad enough to hear the Eucharist belittled and mocked when we hear a priest say, that the words attributed to Jesus were put into his mouth to teach the people of that time, what do we have left? If the word is not Jesus' words, his teaching to us, if these are not the true circumstances of his life, then is the Bible true? Was our Lord resurrected? St. Paul says, if this is not so, we are all fools. Was our Lord crucified for the redemption of our sins? If not, we are not forgiven and we have no hope. Was our Lord ever born? Was there an Adam and Eve? Is there a devil? Is there a God? Oh, sweet Jesus, they have taken our God from us. We are all alone. The priest went on that area upon which the altar of sacrifice stands, and he told us it is no more important than where the congregation sits. He continued he could not understand why some priests insist on special carpeting and giving it special reverence. We cry out, Father, is this not the altar of sacrifice where our dear Lord Jesus is offered as an unbloody sacrifice to the Father? Is this not the altar upon which the Holy Spirit descends at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer? Is this not the altar, as St. John Chrysostom says, where the angels accompany the Holy Spirit as he comes down upon the altar at the priest's summoning? Upon this altar, we not only have the relics of saints who have been recognized because of their piety and faithfulness while on earth, but Jesus in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. We have the Holy Spirit accompanied by myriads of angels. We have God the Father because wherever Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity are, so is God the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. As I meditate upon the cross and back of the altar of sacrifice that so clearly depicts what is about to happen, the song that comes to mind is, We are standing on holy ground. The Lord is present, and where he is, is holy. The altar is holy, and dear priest, your consecrated hands are holy, and you are called to be holy. We know it is not always acceptable to be holy, but you are chosen to be a sign of Jesus in this world, and Jesus was and is holy. Praise God. Thank you for tuning in today for Bob and Penny Lord's Scandal of the Cross. For more information, call Journeys of Faith, toll free at 1-800-633-2484. That toll free number again is one 800 633 2484.